Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of the Figure Podcast. Each week we figure out people, numbers and images of the past, present and future. That was seamless. (laughs) (laughs) And no notes. (laughs) Amazing. So G, what has this week meant to you? This week has meant... A few things which I am shameful <laughs> to admit. No, no, Jay, no uh, shame. Um, no there judgment. is so much shame. There is so much shame. <laughs> um, no, there, there's been a lot of talk about Love Island because um, just how it portrays diversity and body image. Mm. And I think it actually has a very long way to go because all we are seeing are literally girls who have been plucked from Instagram. Um, they look plucked being the optimum absolutely hairless thin tanned and And quite often parts of them not real real and that is being portrayed to young viewers who are 14 or 15 and they're you know they're watching this as if those and also same with the men you know yeah all these guys are huge yeah they they spend hours at the gym every day and also there are are no um they're all just heteronormative relationships Mm. it's like sorry but how yeah. has that not come into it yet? I mean, yeah, it's, not, totally. it's just very behind in that way. One thing that I noticed that got no press was this year in Trooping the Colour. Now, Trooping the Colour is um, a parade that happens every year to celebrate the Queen's birthday, the Queen's official birthday. Mm-hmm. And traditionally, um, it's used um, in preparation for battle. And you oh, have the soldiers parade around and they're the flags are trooped down the mall. Okay. And that's where it comes from. And so every year the monarch celebrates his or her official birthday. And this year we had the first man wear a turban. Um, I remember you sending me that. Yes. Yes. Um, and his name is Charanpreet Singh Lal. And he is a Sikh guard soldier. He um, joined the Queen's Guard a few years ago. And we've never before had a man march... Um, in Tribune the Colour wearing a turban and, and I, I was kind of moved by the footage of that because we had all of the the other soldiers in their sort of big poofy black hats <laughs> which I should probably know the name of but I don't I got like beef eater yeah no, that's totally wrong that's the it? gin is that gin I don't know um, so that was definitely <laughs> is that gin anyway yes, yes. No, that is actually so for, I thought that was just amazing in terms of you know that's so much more representative of britain Mm. um secondly i felt the sugar tax for the first time this week i was doing an online sainsbury's order and i was trying to order (laughs) the elderflower that we're drinking now and it has been taxed there is a sugar levy on the bottle of elderflower that we are drinking how much is it um i mean that's something like 30p i think wow that's quite a high tax i know maybe it was expensive or not. <laughs> <laughs> but it makes you think and that's what it's designed to do it, very true so yes that was my week it was uh mixed with <laughs> a lot of pop culture and politics politics what about you this week has meant going to france to see my dad and his girlfriend which was absolutely lovely mm-hmm. And finding a new flat, which is yes, very so exciting. exciting. So exciting. Um, very adult. Very adult. Um, 
And other than that, I just wanted to give an update on Justice for Nora, which we talked about in our first episode and encouraged people to sign the petition in the second episode. That petition's now reached 1.5 million signatures, but there is still no update in terms of news. So hopefully no news is good news in the sense that they're just they're yeah, working on that. Exactly, but we will give another update next week. And the other update was that last week we talked about Kim, another Kim, Kardashian, yeah. meeting Donald Trump. Yes, we and, did. Um, in order to pardon Alice Marie Johnson, who was actually pardoned the day after we recorded that episode. Mm. So that's a step forward as well. Absolutely, and shows the power of the celebrity. first figure that we're going to talk about in today's episode is Lee Alexander McQueen and there are several reasons why we've chosen to talk about him we're both so excited he is such a genius first of all we went to we both went to the exhibition at the VNA a couple of years ago which I still think is the best exhibition I have ever been to and this is um, an exhibition called Savage Beauty and and the only thing that I knew about Alexander McQueen is I had seen a lot of his work and I was so moved and upset the day that he died. Mm. And so when the opportunity came to see Savage Beauty, I thought, I'm actually really interested to see how this is portrayed because I've seen bits and pieces of his work, but I've never seen it together, mm. you know, presented in a sort of ex- exhibition and I wrote this immediately after I'd been into mm. the exhibition, was that this is not an exhibition, this is an experience. You literally just go in, and once you walk, once you walk into the first room, you are part of that exhibition. Yeah, and that life and vision and creativity, and it was, it was the way that it was curated as well was amazing, because the sounds and the textures and mm. the story, and just everything just immersed you and it didn't matter if you had never been to an art exhibition before in your life or had seen any McQueen or had seen any McQueen you could come out of that and just think wow or as well for me what was I think the most significant is that I had never really valued fashion as an art before Mm. and I just thought of fashion really is about models on a runway and you know Paris fashion week I didn't I was never into fashion yeah and I walked away from it and I thought fashion is the greatest form of art and expression because it embodies absolutely because it because it's so three-dimensional it's sculptural it's, it's sculpt it's exactly painterly it's architecture it's, it's, and it's almost got and, all of them in one yeah and I think and it's McQueen, the setting as exactly. well and he did that better yeah. than anybody yeah. will ever do and I think McQueen is described as all of those things as a sculptor as a painter as an mm-hmm. artist you know all of those things and and you can see that in that and exhibition. as a craftsman as well as a craftsman it's his tailorship and his Savile Row apprenticeship and mm. all of this is just so fundamental mm. to and everything that's, that and he that's does. where he trained that was his origin was mm. at Savile Row that I um this great article that I read about Sarah Burton who we'll get onto in a moment but she said that he was such a perfectionist that all of the pins that they used were colour coded to the fabrics they were using because he didn't want it to distract from the overall sculpture. Wow. Because when he was sculpting a dress around a mannequin or a model, she said just watching him do it was just incredible because mm. he was literally just doing it all himself and he mm. made absolutely he did everything from the embroidery to the tailoring, you know, to the knitwear. Yeah. She said it was just absolutely extraordinary to see one man be able to do all of that Mm. so the second reason after that 
explanation of the exhibition. Um, Kate Spade has obviously been in the news in the last week, mm. and it's really and Anthony Bourdain and Anthony Bourdain, and it's brought up this. It's kind of resurrected this idea of the tortured genius. The third reason is that we both went to see the new film that has just come out called McQueen. And we would highly recommend this again, as we would have recommended that exhibition, Savage Beauty, to mm. anybody and everybody. Yeah. We recommend this you film. You don't need to know anything. To anybody and everybody. You don't need to know anything about his history. And I think what's great is they were almost vlogging. I mean, they vlogged their whole experience. They vlogged this mad journey from when he started and when he was first doing his first collections that were incredibly provocative. He got so much criticism. Mm. And they, and they, and him and his, he had a very close team. And, and it, I love the way that came across. Yeah. It takes you through the whole journey to Paris, which I and didn't know about. And then beyond and into Plato's Atlantis. Mm. And oh my God, it's just the most overwhelming film. And, yeah, my first question is, how did you feel when that film had finished? I felt that I had been punched in the stomach. I was so overcome with so many different feelings because it's it takes you through his life. It also takes you through his collections. It takes you through all of the backstories for that. And then they we obviously end the film with his death. And suicide is something that, I think affects everyone and it's so devastating mm. and I just felt so devastated to to sort of see his family talk about it yeah and, I think what they did so died. well is that they they've incorporated this personal VHS footage and I love how it's all yeah. fuzzy and it yeah. just comes in and out and the cinematography of it was just so beautiful mm. but they've built up they've given you the real alexander mcqueen it's so real and it's so mm. human and when and the time he dies you feel as though it's a character's died and you've lost yeah but a character. It's, it's like it's more like a friend well yeah it is more it's like, like you've seen him mm. joking around and mm. playing with everybody and you know losing himself and then finding himself and mm. expressing himself and he in his speaks art. to the camera he speaks to you yeah he's speaking to the camera in first person so he he's literally you literally feel as though you're getting to know him throughout the film mm-hmm. exactly which is why when they come yeah. to his suicide he's suddenly feel- gone because his perspective is gone and you and you you think oh my oh my yeah. gosh but we, i want to hear from him about that yes <laughs> because you've been hearing from him the whole time not only that he was just a guy from stratford and he had mm. this lovely east end london accent which mixed in with all of this fashion in paris and all these models and john galliano and they're all so fake and blah, blah, blah. yeah you just hear he lee speak just as a guy from london yeah and it was so authentic and i, I love loved it. that about him Me too. and the second thing that was so moving was that in none of his clothes are women ever portrayed as sexy or as objects of men. It's all about empowerment mm-hmm. and almost making the women look sort of intimidating. Like you don't want to mess with her. Yeah. And I think he is years before mm. his time. So, so before his time. You think about the context now. Yeah. You think about his shows. These women, are ju- you don't want to mess with them. They look mm. incredibly strong, incredibly powerful. And as I said to you afterwards, because you made that point that they're not sexy. Yeah. But in some ways, because he's made them so beautiful and so strong, yeah. that is the most sexy. sexual yeah. 
like element that you could possibly convey. And they're all covered. I mean, a lot of the time they're covered. You can see the most sexy woman because she's so strong and fierce, but she's covered. I mean, it's not that she's showing anything. Yeah. You know? I mean, sometimes she's showing a lot. But, but that's <laughs> also for other reasons about, you know, especially... But there's just this strength that he gets across. And I love watching his models in mm. the collections. And mm. there is... Nobody could look at them and say they're hangers for the clothes. No. Their personalities, their characters become part of his collection but equally equally they also disappear in the sense that when you're watching it you see famous faces like Jodie Kidd mm-hmm. Naomi Campbell Kate Moss obviously you notice Kate Moss in certain shows that she did but actually after a while they all kind of the clothes wear them yes you know it's yes. not it's not actually about the models but I also feel that the models become part of this almost tribal team mm. that he surrounded himself well, with. Well, you kind of see that in the backstage, which is so great. And you and you um, see these interviews with the different models and they say, you know, he literally wound us up and riled us up yeah. backstage and then just sent us out there. Yeah. And it felt like a show. It was that feeling that you get when you're on stage performing and there's a director. Mm-hmm. And essentially, of course, that's what a designer is. But you just don't think about fashion or fashion shows in the same way. And because he presented them with all of these incredible sets, it just felt like a show. Yeah. And then brings that point back that this is the greatest art. Yeah, the greatest art. And I mean, we've only we're only 18 years into the 21st century, but I, in my opinion, he is the greatest artist of the 21st century. Completely agree. And what he actually said himself, when I am dead and gone, people will know that the 21st century was started started by by Alexander McQueen. Yeah. You often associate a skull with Mm -hmm. Alexander McQueen and you often associate tartan with Alexander McQueen. Mm -hmm. And I knew, obviously, the skulls. I was saying this to Charlotte yesterday. I never liked the image of a skull. The skull Mm. and crossbones, to me, reminded me of... Uh, children's birthday parties where people would dress up as pirates it was very scary <laughs> and I just didn't I didn't like that yeah and I remember seeing the first ever it was actually at Claire's party I saw her jacket with sort of a blazer and it had skulls all over it and I remember looking at it and I just thought that is honestly one of the most beautiful pieces of clothing I've ever seen in my life mm. the tailoring the colour the skulls yeah and I thought, this is absolutely stunning. I guess connotation to the skull is about death. It's about darkness. It's the fact that we are just all mm-hmm. bones. I think it's about transience as well, more mm. than anything. And I love that in some of his work, that even things like the glass around the, the models in the Voss campaign where mm. they're trapped by their own reflection and the yeah. audience is also trapped by their own reflection because there's this one-way mirror. Mm. But it's the fragility of that and everything just shatters and mm. breaks. But that's sort of what the skull represents Absolutely. as well. His and insight into life and how delicate it is and how mm. we are all so flawed. No one is perfect. And the irony of that being in the fashion industry where perfection is sort of the most... I guess, sought after mm. thing. And that's why what I loved about Voss was the setting is this sort of mental asylum where you have these girls coming out and they're all in these sort of different kind of straight jackets and they've mm. got wires all over them. And the bandages become the beautiful. The bandages become beautiful and these, you know, you see these kind of patient looking type people become beautiful because 
humans, I guess the whole human form is beautiful. And that's kind of what he wanted to project. And then in the middle, you have, like you said, this glass cage mm. um, with a woman in it. And I thought, so genius is the so the model was interviewed and she said god i mean what more of a nightmare to the fashion industry a fat woman and moths <laughs> yes and i thought yeah yes it is yeah. that is so i mean then and then the, then the box shatters at the end of the of the show and it just shatters your whole mind as oh, well it completely completely and- what I love about this film is that it's a feature-length film. It yeah. had to be on the big screen. Absolutely. Because only three or four hundred people were actually able to see these shows when they happened. But I didn't realise that, you know, he was on un- unemployment benefits after leaving Central St. Martin's. No, I had no idea. And that's how he paid for his early shows. And he would come home from shows and go to McDonald's. Yeah. Because he could, didn't have two pounds to eat a meal. He managed to build up an entire empire. And now Sarah Burton has taken over... She did that very quietly and very nobly, and I think she wanted to remain very discreet, which is why she wasn't included in the documentary. But of course, she was the one who designed Kate Middleton's wedding dress. That was probably the most single, significant, most famous wedding that we'll ever live through. Mm. Probably one of the most famous weddings in history. Mm. And and the dress is so much the, a part of that. The dress is so much a part of that. And I just... He would have loved every single second of it because mm. Kate Middleton was also a figure, someone who, you know, was a very normal person and then suddenly was just blown up by the media and torn to pieces for years and years yeah. and years. And I think that he would have had so much empathy. But I also think he would have loved Meghan Markle's dress, which mm. was designed by Givenchy, which... yeah. He headed up age 27. Yeah. yeah. Unbelievable made how much this man coll- He made achieved. 15 collections a year because he was doing McQueen in London mm-hmm. and Givenchy in Paris mm-hmm. and was going six months, six months yeah. between the two. And for that first Givenchy show, which is stunning. So stunning. And was based on the Golden Fleece. He made 55 looks in 25 days. Mm. I mean, how is that mm. even Talk about working possible. well under pressure. Yeah. <laughs> My question was, what do you think makes us fall in love with him so much? His vulnerability and the fact that he was completely unapologetic about the darkness that he felt and that he could bring that to his art. And that's what made him so successful, mm. is being able to put, your, put yourself on the line and saying... This is who I am. This is what I'm making. And every single person can then relate to it. Our second figure, it is that the London Philharmonic Orchestra has 25 different nationalities represented within it. And the reason, or part of the reason for this, is that they're one of the many orchestras in the world, mm. who do blind auditions. But I think this sort of, uh, I guess, breadth of diversity mm-hmm. is unique for LPO. Mm. I don't think there's another orchestra in the world that actually has 25 different nationalities mm. represented in it. Um, and that's 
just very significant for the orchestra. It is. Mm. It is. And it's actually something, and I've tried to find out the exact number of the place that I work of how many nationalities we have mm. because it was one of the questions that are on the Christmas uh, quiz and I can't remember the answer. <laughs> oh, that's such a good question for it's the quiz. such a good question. Yes. But I feel like it was over 20, but I'm not entirely sure. And what mm. I love about where I work one of the many things is that you will hear people just chatting away in French or Spanish or Italian and mm. when we do demos on Fridays everyone stands up and then you've got different accents from all over the world and I love it and some of the articles that I've read in relation to these blind auditions it's not about necessarily the diversity of countries it's what that brings to the company and it's the diversity of ideas absolutely and the Boston Symphony Orchestra mm-hmm. um, was the first ever orchestra to introduce blind auditions in 1952 mm-hmm. and one of the reasons they did this is because traditionally musicians were handpicked by the conductor so that's incredibly elitist yeah uh, and <laughs> I mean let alone sexist I mean there was no, I mean, hardly <laughs> any females you just had if you knew the conductor personally, if you were tutored by them or tutored by friends of them, it was all kind of very bureaucratic. Yeah, a lot of nepotism. Very much so. Mm. And I think one of the reasons they started the blind auditions was actually to involve more women Mm -hmm. because it meant that women were therefore more likely to be included in the orchestra Mm. if it was blind, Mm -hmm. sadly, but Mm. true. Um, And actually, (laughs) the first time that I found out about this was through this brilliant book called Blink by Mm. uh, Malcolm Gladwell. And it's all about how we as humans make absolute snap decisions about so many different things. And then that is very difficult to shake that and Mm. it can influence so many things. And you're not even aware of it. It's totally unconscious. Mm. But by taking away that physical gender snap that's who you are Mm -hmm. it ended up changing who they picked and the snap decision also applies to who they choose so Mm. when it's only on sound they'll still have this snap within a couple of seconds they'll know if they want to hire them and Malcolm Gladwell tells this brilliant story where there was a French horn player and the person who was on the panel said yes we want him we want him and then the person comes yes. out behind the screen and it's a woman and the panellist almost has a heart attack. Yeah. And I just love that. I think yeah. this is how it should be. Yeah, yeah. Because absolutely. it's all about talent and how much that person has worked and... Because if you have it. the most talented people that you can, then that's going to be the most successful orchestra, mm. regardless of all of your personal mm-hmm. uh, judgment. But do you so, think so? Actually, that makes complete sense. Yeah, and that's why we can relate that back to the Thirty Percent Club and Helena Morrissey. Yeah, if you've got the most competent people, regardless of their gender, regardless of their race, regardless of anything. You're going to have the most competent company. The LPO has been part of my life um, for many years, um, and it, it's very closely related to my family and I've been to many many concerts and I've met um most of the orchestra and a funny story from blind audition that I heard was that apparently there was a musician and he was playing and the panel asked him a question which was obviously supposed to be rhetorical unanswered and he answered so they could obviously hear that he was a man Mm. and they cut him yeah, he didn't. Yeah, he, he didn't, didn't get it, it because then they because they were like, now we're biased, so you have to leave. <laughs> I thought, wow, that is really like blind, 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 blind. Yeah, if you can't make a sound, yeah, you can't yeah, make yeah. a sound. You're not allowed to make a sound mm. or anything. And it also means for people who um, may, you know, also be disabled, who have all sorts of other sort of learning, like 
Every, it basically means that diversity and yeah. inclusion to the max. Mm. Even height. Yeah. They found that so many CEOs are very tall people. Oh my God. <laughs> and it's just, <laughs> it's all sorts of weird physical traits that mm. can end up influencing careers in the certain groups of people. And yeah, I just, I love that orchestras have become this incredible example of mm. if you put up this screen mm. this is what is the outcome and it's just talent it's not about your background yeah yeah and completely to, yeah and it's it's incredible and, and mm. the lpo um they their home is the south bank center um and it's so beautiful every time if whenever you, if you ever go to a concert there it's just lovely walking across the bridge and you see all the lights and you just see london in such a beautiful Mm. state i, I suppose. love south bank south bank is amazing mm. um especially at christmas oh yeah so <laughs> in winter it's lovely <laughs> it's so nice it's so lovely and the conductor vladimir jurowski i think we could not possibly do this podcast without mentioning him he is an mm. absolute genius in his field and he's been the principal conductor of the lpo since 2007 and he trained at the Moscow Conservatory. And anytime I see anyone who is from Russia, I immediately... Suddenly my blinkers are on. I'm like, ooh, I wonder what, like, how they left Russia and why and all of those sorts of things. Georgia loves Russia. I for, do. Um, I, for anyone who doesn't By know. love, I mean fascinated. I'm not at all... Um, I yes. do not at all agree with uh, how their foreign policy or how their general corruption is <laughs> but i i'm very in- intrigued by russia and its history and also the fact that it has produced so many musical geniuses i mean mm. tchaikovsky mm-hmm. one of my favorite composers yeah, of all time too. swan lake he would be one of my desert island discs a hundred percent same um so you know and then he and then going from the moscow conservatory vladimir then moved with his with his family to germany where he completed his education um, and he joined the Berlin Opera. And he debuted at the Met Opera in 1999 and started conducting with the LPO um, in 2001. So mm. he's been a part of the orchestra's history for a really long time. Yeah. Um, and I actually, I wrote down a quote from him, which I really love. And he says that the image of the whole orchestra becoming one large pair of ears... For me, that is the greatest way of making music. Mm. And it's a bit of a weird image, but I do understand it's this many becoming one. Absolutely. And I think that when you watch a beautiful ballet or even a play or a rowing team or whatever it is, when they these many people just become part of this bigger whole and the kind of... No, the, the whole is... <laughs> greater than the sum of its parts there that's it the yes. whole is the greater whole is greater than the sum of its parts i wanted to ask you two questions mm-hmm. um what is your favorite piece of classical music oh that is such a good question okay i really like um a piece by debussy um and i can't remember the name of it um well, we're going to find it. We're going to play it after this intersection because I think that would be lovely to hear. Um, Claire de Lune. Claire de Lune. Claire de Lune by Debussy <gasps> oh, is one Claire of my favourites. And that was one of the first things I learned to play on the clarinet when I was a... Really? Yeah, when, oh. <laughs> when I started. And I always think of um, Atonement, which is an incredible book and, yeah, beautiful film adaptation of that as well. Um, 
I just love it. I find it's it's so poignant and sad and subtle, but also incredibly beautiful. Mm. Claire de Lune is mm. lovely. What's yours? Mine is so it's it's joint, and uh, we've already mentioned Swan Lake by Tchaikovsky. Mm-hmm. Oh, that would be another one. So that was my, probably one of my favourites. But my second favourite is actually The Magic Flute by Mozart. Um, and it's probably one of my favourite mm. pieces of music ever. Um, I find it very emotional. Mm-hmm. It's also combines... It's an opera that combines the spoken word and song. Yeah. And... I just love Mozart as a composer. I've always felt very connected to his story. I remember learning about it when I was very young. He will definitely be a figure in future and podcasts. And I just think he's a complete genius. Mm. And I'm just, I, Magic Flute was lovely. And also Don Giovanni, which is also yeah, by which Mozart. Which is incredible. And actually, when I was in Prague... It's um, the first opera I ever saw. At yeah, the Royal no, Opera was, House when I was sort of yeah, it was, seven or eight years old. It was one of my first mm. as well. And I saw it when I was interrailing and we were in Prague and we managed to get tickets for about five pounds. And we were right in the very, very top parts seeing Don Giovanni in the opera house where it had first been performed. Oh. which was amazing there was such a connection with that particular opera and that particular place absolutely but we noticed that the first couple of rows were empty mm. and so halfway through we just scuttled down and then mm. just sat and we just had front row seats for the rest of the opera and it was oh just it's sublime incredible. Mozart is mm. incredible mm. I also had a question for you which is more um, around blind job interviews um have you ever f- sent off an application and thought, I wonder if I had put George Park in rather than <laughs> Georgia, yeah. would I have got this? I think it's. I think that's a question that's interesting in the sense that I have never considered that until now, mm. until 2018. I don't know. I think I grew up in a mm. time where it was still a very conventional... Yeah. Man, breadwinner, women less so. I did not see, I didn't, I don't think I grew up thinking it was 100% equal. Mm. Even though my mum is probably one of the biggest feminists I know ever and Mm. it's always worked and is huge on female empowerment. Mm. I still think society generally. Mm. And I don't think I, yeah, I'd agree with you. It's about that until now. It's come to my attention in recent years, but I think reading that book, Blink. Yeah actually made me think, I wonder if I had actually said Charlie or Charles instead of Charlotte, would I have Mm. maybe not be rejected from so many jobs? And also, I also (laughs) sometimes, and this is going beyond the concept of blind, but I often think, if I was George, would I be more confident innately going into the workplace? Mm. Would I be able to, as... Hugo okay, so this it, is where back I would... yourself. <laughs> would I be able to do that more effectively <laughs> as George? Yeah, I don't know. This is where I think Amy Cuddy's TED talk is amazing. Mm-hmm. Power poses are so brilliant, and for anybody, we put this on our Twitter this week. Anybody yeah. who's going to an interview, to an exam, do the power poses. It's yeah. features in the bold type as well. Yeah. Just look weird. It doesn't matter. No, you will go in feeling so much more confident. Mm-hmm. And it's great. So that is our tip of the podcast. Absolutely.
The third figure that we're going to talk about today was one that we decided on um, over the weekend because I went to see some cave art in France, mm-hmm. which is 14,000 years old. Can we just put that in context? Jesus <laughs> was on the planet 2,000 years ago. So this is, this is 12,000 years Thank you for that context. before Jesus. I think we just need to put that in context. Yeah, no, that's a good way of putting it yeah. in context. Yeah. It was a long, 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 a long time really ago. A really long time ago. Um, so the image that we've chosen is this amazing donkey, and mm. I absolutely love it, mm. and it's got so much personality in it. Mm. And something that I just found so wonderful about the whole experience of seeing these caves was that you go all the way down, it's 800 metres oh into the cave. So it's a long way. Did you ever feel claustrophobic? I was wondering if I was going to, and I've been in things like that before, like the glowworm caves that I was telling you about yes. in the first po- um, podcast that we did. Yes. Because and... we only talk through podcasts, so we don't never talk about <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm joking. But yes, of course. Um, and I was fine with that. And I sometimes wonder if I'm not going to be okay, but I generally am. Okay. Um, but yeah, no, you're going past all the stalagmites and the stalactites and you're going up and down and over and through these kind of little define, tunnels. Define stalagmites and stalactites. Okay, I can't remember which way round it is. Okay. But one of them comes down from the ceiling and the other one comes up. Oh, the pointy things that make you feel like you're in a cave. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, so yeah, and we we get to the final chamber where they have eighty um, percent of the cave art in that cave is in this one kind of space, and they have over a hundred drawings, I think. Mm. Um, a paint, and they use manganese oxide. Yes. Uh, to draw on the caves and iron oxide and iron oxide, and uh, one of the reasons for that is because it will survive for that long. Time. Although they might not have known that <laughs> at the time. They may not have known that at the time, but they also may have known that at the time mm. because that's a sort of very, that's a compound. But that... it's a natural way of painting. Yes. And very much luckily so. for everybody, it has actually survived. Yes. Um, but so basically we went into this cave and you're in the final chamber and it's got a huge ceiling and they turn off all of your lamps that you've been given because of the kind of light pollution conservation aspect of it. And they line everybody up. The guide flips her light on, which was so much brighter than anyone else's, and then just lights up the entire wall. And it's just this collective intake of breath. Oh, my God. It was so beautiful. It was such an incredible experience. And this donkey just immediately popped out of me, and I just... Was it was it odd to sort of see art that had been, I guess, formed by humans that was so much older? The, yeah. the point that you can't even conceive yes. how much older they are. Yes. And one of the things that I found interesting about researching the caves was that they were defined, obviously this artwork is defined as prehistoric. And mm-hmm. I actually didn't know what the definition of prehistoric was so it, do you know now i do know now and it's a time that was before men could write oh i didn't know that yeah that's before they really were literate, which is why they would draw wow mm. i love that and that's what prehistoric means so before we even had you know a- anyone writing anything down that is why you had these caves and so i then my sort of trail of thought was are these caves the oldest caves 
And it turns out not. It turns <laughs> out the oldest piece of cave art was actually found in India. Um, and they have been dated to be anywhere between 290,000 to 700,000. Oh my God. Years old. And, and it basically shows the earliest stages of human life and wow. the evidence of the Stone Age. And they're called Bimbeta and Duraki Chatan capsules. And they're in middle of India. That's incredible. Yeah. But I, what I love about the symbolism of these caves is, first of all, their affinity with the animal. <laughs> they are so easily defined. Yeah. And you think, okay, maybe 15,000 years ago, maybe animals looked different to mm. how they do now. I think that we also have this assumption that humans have also always been progressing and mm. that humans now are better at drawing and writing and yes. making things and doing tools and whatever it is than the humans 14,000 years ago. But that's not necessarily true. Mm. And I think it's really interesting that we're all so surprised at how good it is. Mm. But why Why are we like that? Same what, with the Egyptians. I mean, no one can figure out way. how the pyramids were made. Yeah, and they still couldn't. No, they still I can't. mean, look at the average building that's built now. Mm. Let's compare that even to 500 years ago. You just, you just think, no, like, we're <laughs> not making beautiful buildings. And you think... The Egyptians, how could they do that? Or Greece, ancient Greece. Yeah, there's so many, so many periods of time where you just think, how? Mm. And we still don't even know. Mm. But what I loved about these drawings was just the fluidity of the line. And they drew attention to so many interesting things. So the fact that we were looking at this with big, powerful electric torch. Mm. They would have had candles yep. and they would have been flickering. And so yes. they wouldn't even have seen exactly what they were doing, which I also thought was fascinating because I did a few exercises when I was doing life drawing and we would have a sheet of paper over the top of the paper that we were using. So we would be drawing and we had no idea what yes, we were drawing. I did that in art as well when I was yeah. younger. And it was so interesting because actually what you ended up creating was something that almost looked more like what you were drawing than when you were drawing it but could see what you were doing. Exactly. Exactly. Even though it was slightly abstract. Yeah. And maybe the because lines you're were looking, looking so much yes. more because you're not looking at your paper. You're yes. looking at what you're drawing. Yes. My grandmother used to do that. My grandmother was an artist. Um, mm. an incredible artist. And I she, love her stuff. Yeah, she's she, Elise Parkin. Shout out. Um, <laughs> and she used to do that too. When she when she um, sketched me for the first time, she didn't look down, barely look yes. down on what she was doing. And she has this amazing. And it frees you up. Mm. And this is what I think is so fantastic about these works of art in the cave. They just have this freedom and fluidity, and the the love and affection and affinity with these animals is so communicated. Absolutely. Through their work. I have one question for you. Mm hmm. Which is, if you could visit any piece of ancient civilization in the world, and by that I mean ruin, mm -hmm. where would it be and why? Ooh, I think it'd be something in India. I've mm. never been to India before. Um, I've been to Burma and I've been to Sri Lanka, but India is just, I mean, colossal. And I don't mm. even know where I would begin, but I would love to go and see some of the art there and just experience the noise and the people and the smells and the food and all of that but it's something that I think would be very 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 intense and people I've met who've been to India have said you it's so extreme you it is your favorite thing in the world and then you hate it more than anything <laughs> yes I've heard the same <laughs> <laughs> but I would love to go one day 
Um, yeah, that would be my answer. What would your answer be? Machu Picchu. Oh, yeah, it's good. I've still not been. Mm. And uh, that's one of the, I guess, ancient wonders of the world that mm. I would love to go and see. Mm-hmm. So, one day. Yes. I will make it there. One day. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I think this week was a very significant one for us just because of... Oh, we just loved the concept of Alexander McQueen and we're really happy that we were able to speak about it. Yeah. yeah. And the creativity of all three sections today. Absolutely. It's just and so I also important. Can't we now have four tangible episodes. Four. Yeah. I, ah. well, and we, there's so many more to come. So many more to come. And I think before we started, I just never thought we'd even have one, let alone four. That's <laughs> awesome. Um, and thank you so much for everyone for their feedback it's just so lovely to hear from everyone what they think um please 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 come and find us on itunes um just because your rating really helps other people find the podcast um so that would be super super helpful if you could go and rate it and leave a comment um and just sort of spread the word would yeah. be lovely we are on twitter at figure podcast we are on instagram at figure podcast which will show all of the images that we have been talking about today yes um we've got we, we haven't even mentioned that so far in the episode but i'm very proud of the the last insta post because it's basically a <laughs> compilation of all our favorite mcqueen um, i mean there were so many to choose from yeah. i think it's just so hard to yeah. put them all into one post yeah but but but, but if you refer to that it, to the instagram and you'll see all the figures yeah every week and we would highly recommend you go and see the film we would highly recommend i mean well so many (laughs) which is full of recommendations i know i feel like that's we're a sort of dead beaten track for that but (laughs) but what i would say is thank you so much for sticking with us and if you have listened to all four episodes then we are we love you we love you thank you so much i really really appreciate it and that's what and that's why we do this is so that we can talk for everyone and share our voices absolutely so share your voice with us Oh, uh, emailing us <laughs> at, perfect charlotte at podcast at gmail.com yes until next week until next week <laughs>